Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges, Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides AAVMC the opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So April is National Financial Literacy Month in the United States. And so today's show, my guests and I will discuss financial literacy, um, finance in general, and diversity in veterinary medicine. So I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Hilda Mayo-Abru, Assistant Dean for uh, Admissions Scholarships Diversity and Inclusion, I had thought I had a long title, at Michigan State University, Dr. Tony Bartel, uh, a contributor at um, the Veterinary Information Network, and last but certainly not least, Dr. Jim Lloyd, Dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Florida. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Great. So um, as, as our custom on the show, I'd like to give my guests um, each a minute or two to tell us a little bit about their background and kind of how they ended up here with us um, talking about financial literacy and uh, diversity in veterinary medicine. So Hilda, um, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thank you, Lisa, for the opportunity of being with you and for working with Dean Loy and, of course, Mr. Tony. Uh, so a little bit about my background. I am actually a first-generation college student. Uh, I have always been interested in the topic of education and financial aid. So it's not a surprise that I ended up working in the field of enrollment management and financial aid. So I started my career at the University of Massachusetts, where I was actually an admissions tour guide and then became a financial aid officer and a student employment coordinator. And uh, fast forward to Michigan State back in the 90s, I came and worked here as the director of admissions, had a blast doing that. And some very good mentors, including Dean Loy, if I may say, pushed me to go back to school for a PhD where I learned quite a bit about higher ed and was challenged to the max. Um, even during my PhD, as I was working full-time, I was challenged completing my PhD because of the lack of funding for additional research, and I was fortunate to have been provided a fellowship. So I'm passionate about enrollment management. I'm passionate about financial aid and helping first-generation college students find ways to defray the cost of education. So that's what brought me here. So went to the University of Texas, went to corporate, came back to Michigan State to a place that I love, where I know that I can make some huge contribution. So that's a little bit about my background, Lisa. Thank you for the opportunity to just highlight some things about my work. Thank you. Thank you. So, Jim, why don't we go to you down there in Florida? Sure. Thanks, Lisa. So uh, this is a little bit uh, ad lib, a lot ad lib. I uh, also uh, was a first generation college student uh, when I went to Michigan State University way back in the dark ages. Um, but almost before they invented college, but not quite. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and so I went to veterinary school, uh, practiced a while, uh, 
kind of got interested in business and economics along the way, went back and did a PhD in agricultural economics and spent most of my career on the faculty at Michigan State University. Uh, and uh, about four years ago, uh, after having had 25 years on the faculty at Michigan State, I retired and moved to Florida like many people do, although <laughs> I didn't uh, retire to, to a, a lack of things to do. I've been being here now for four years and, and uh, am enjoying the, 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 the gig, if you will. Um, my interest in, uh, other than being an economist and a veterinarian, my interest really uh, aligns with our topics today for a number of reasons, not the least of which as a as a dean in veterinary medicine, I, one of the things that I say repeatedly is that we're in the business of creating the future of this great profession. And as I think about the future of this great profession, first of all, uh, we need as a profession to reflect the society that we, that we serve, or uh, the short story is we'll become irrelevant. So we need to be concerned about diversity and inclusion. It's not just a uh, it's not just a, 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 an issue of uh, representation. It's an issue of, of uh, again, will we remain relevant? It's an economic issue in and of itself. And, and it's, of course, a social justice issue. Uh, from the financial side and, and uh, student debt side, as we, um, just background, as we did strategic planning here, the single most important issue that we heard from many stakeholder groups is uh, the, the issue of student debt. And, and of course, we aren't alone in that as a, as a profession, uh, but we, we might be at the leading edge of, uh, of the student debt crisis in the United States. So uh, together, uh, they, they aligned it to be really important to me personally, to this college, and, and to the profession as a whole. Well, thank you. I'm sure I'm sure we'll talk a bit about some of the things that you all are doing down there in Florida and, and um, to address this issue. So, um, Tony, welcome. Hi. Yeah. So, yeah. Welcome. Thank you. And and uh, thanks for having me. But just to round out or have complete the trifecta, I am also a first generation uh, college student. So uh, I attended college. This actually veterinary medicine is a second career for me. So I started in chemical engineering at Purdue University. And then ended up in corporate finance uh, before I found my way to veterinary school, where I did a combined MBA DVM uh, with Colorado State and graduated in 2012. Practiced for a couple of years in small animal and exotic practice here in Colorado and um, found myself uh, being asked more student debt repayment related questions than uh, we had answers for. And at the same time, ran into Paul Pion, who's the co-founder and CEO of VIN. Uh, who was also getting questions from the, the VIN community about student debt and how to best repay it. So that's how we got really introduced. And you know, I was graduating at that time and I uh, married a veterinarian who was going through um, a specialty and residency in small animal internal medicine. And she had even more debt than I did. So I kind of fell um, head first into the student debt repayment um, morass, I guess, or challenge, if you will, uh, trying to figure out just best ways to deal with it with the lower starting incomes and you know how you deal with it during internships and residencies and and since then I've really been uh, traveled around to a lot of the different schools and conferences and providing assistance on VIN to uh, to those trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet particularly as they get started no matter what their background is and what their student debt number is we can usually find a way to help them uh, repay and get started uh, doing what they went to vet school for in the first place, and that was to be veterinarians, right? So a lot of this student debt stuff is just really an ugly side effect of following our passions. And 
there are definitely better ways to handle it than others. And depending on your pathway to and through veterinary school, you may be better equipped to handle those than others. Uh, but we're going to try to get you the education that you need to um, to make whatever your situation is work for you. Great. Thank you. So yeah, this is um, a, a special group. Um, I am also a first generation college attendee <laughs> as well. So um, we are right in our wheelhouse today, aren't we? <laughs> yes, All right. <laughs> so I want to frame our discussion um, a bit and uh, share a little bit of background. So um, AAVMC runs several applicant surveys each year in an effort to learn more about our applicant, um, our applicant pool. So we learn more about kind of their academic profiles, their levels of financial literacy, which we use um, as an instrument. <clears throat> we use part of the Jumpstart instrument, which is commonly used in um, high school and undergrad. And uh, we also look at several other important data points, like how they are, um, how they engage with academic and pre-vet uh, pre advising. For the last two years, we've gathered data specifically related to um, applicants who are first-generation uh, college attendees, um, as well as applicants who received or are eligible to receive Pell Grants um, while in school. And so we use these two data points um, as, as socioeconomic um, indicators. So what we found is that also there's, of course, a, a great deal of overlap between these two groups, um, as well as um, applicants of color who are more likely to fall in either one or both of these categories. So here are some stats that kind of get us started in our discussion. 28% of our applicants um, for the current um, group that will be starting vet school this fall, 28% of applicants received a Pell Grant or were Pell Grant el eligible at the time of application. 21% of applicants are first-generation college attendees. Applicants with Pell Grants, um, as well as applicants who are first-generation, are more likely, statistically more likely, to have um, more debt than their peers, $5,000 to more than $6,000 worth of, of debt more than their peers. Um, Underrepresented students um, and Pell students um, and first generation, they tend to, um, their profiles tend to um, indicate that they're less likely to know how they're going to finance their DVM degree. Um, they're less likely to have family resources to assist them during um, their matriculation. They're more likely to finance the entirety of their education on loans. And they're really um, more likely to express some concern about not knowing um, how they intend to, to do this, right? How they're intending to finance education at all. So Pell Grants um, applicants specifically are less likely to talk about um, graduate school debt with their pre-vet advisors as well. So as I kind of was looking at some of these, um, these uh, indicators, I came to a conclusion that uh, suggested that they might be at greater risk um, for acquiring more debt due to, in part, lower levels of financial literacy. And we'll talk about some flaws in that um, conclusion in a bit. But I do want to kind of kick us off with getting um, some reactions to um, these, this, this data. And so, Tony, I kind of wanted to start with you and kind of what was your reaction when I first sent you some of these, some of these stats? Yeah, my, my initial reaction was that uh, um, not knowing how folks are going to finance their education is, uh, uh, is not unique to 
a special group, right, or or a, a specific group. I think that uh, it is is generally the case, right? We we often come to veterinary medicine um, from the life sciences and not having a lot of financial education or literacy in general. And college, you know, borrowing for uh, undergrad and or veterinary school is probably not the best way to get introduced to financial literacy. Um, and specifically, borrowing for undergrad versus veterinary school are very different. So, um, you know, Pell Grants are mostly available to folks that are, are undergrads only and, you know, are, unlike you pointed out, need-based. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me to see that there would be uh, somebody that use utilized or qualified for Pell Grants would be statistically at a higher risk to borrow more for veterinary school. But I really believe that that's, um, that's just, that just comes with not having a solid understanding of how borrowing for veterinary school works. And it's not even really unique to financial literacy. I mean, uh, it, it's almost a special skill set or special knowledge set to know how borrowing works for higher education these days. So uh, just being financially literate doesn't necessarily mean you're going to um, be able to even borrow less. The, the one thing that really uh, jumped out at me, though, is, is really concerning was that Pell applicants are less likely to discuss graduate school debt with their pre-vet advisors. I feel like, you know, whatever we do, we really have to try to remove the taboo around uh, financial awareness or literacy or just your situation in general and try to get them some help because everybody can use it, right? Anybody that's borrowing for veterinary school, no matter what their background is, could use some assistance in understanding how better to finance their veterinary education. So whatever we can do to remove those barriers that are perceived to be in place um, simply because they're either embarrassed or, or otherwise, that's where I think we can really make some headway. Right. So um, Jim, are we um, pricing ourselves out of the market? And um, what is some of your reactions to to this data? Well, that's a that, that's a, a huge question. The, the first part, are we private? That implies a lot of things. It implies <laughs> that, that we have price control of the prices we set for one, uh, which is a, something we talk about as well. Uh, you know, I, I want to first talk about the the relationship between financial literacy and indebtedness and and, and the Pell Grants here. Um, so, so the as Tony indicates, the uh, the ability the ability to qualify uh, for a Pell Grant is based on financial need as as assessed through income uh, and wealth. And so it's not surprising that uh, that students that might have lower income or, or households come from households with lower wealth uh, would would qualify for for more likely to qualify for the Pell Grants and would come to veterinary medical school with a higher debt load. Uh, that really doesn't uh, have I mean without controlling for uh, the the income and wealth effects. It's hard to say that this is just because of financial literacy. So financial literacy is an important thing, as Tony says, for for all uh, students coming into veterinary veterinary medical school because you know it's important success period financial success um, professional success. So so I think having said that, it is important now because of the uh, of the correlation of, uh, of income and wealth. With uh, with many of the, the the dimensions of diversity that we're interested in, uh, socioeconomic status uh, is 
uh, 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 is lower, frankly, in a lot of the disadvantaged communities that we want to think about recruiting more and uh, more successfully from and haven't seen greater representation in our schools. Uh, so it is more important that we think about the, the cost of school and repayment options uh, for sure if we're going to be successful in enhancing diversity inclusion in the profession. When I saw the data, having been a uh, guidance counselor at a high school and working with populations that are really disadvantaged at a variety of opportunities that I have been giving, the first thing that I thought about, oh my God, the need for early education is so important, not only at the undergraduate level, but K through 12. And I couldn't help but to think that when I used to be an advisor at a high school, a guidance counselor at a high school, my workload of advisee was about 800 at Boston Technical High School. And how do you even begin to educate on financial literacy when the first goal is, is everyone here and learning? And I'm one advisor for 800 young people. And this stats really told me we need to start early on K through 12, but also we have to be really deliberate how we do this. Because by the time a young person gets to Michigan State or to the University of Florida or to University of Massachusetts, if they don't have these tools, even just even if they're, they're just tools that they know, it's going to be really hard for them not to take on the opportunity of a visa card or a master card because they don't know what compound interests mean. They don't know the first thing because number one, they didn't have the education in K through 12. And I'm not blaming the counselors, I'm blaming the infrastructure. It just doesn't exist. And then when you think about, I'll give you myself as an example, when I came to college, I was by myself, first generation. I had no idea what it meant to take a help loan, which was the name at that time, and what the interest meant. So early education is important as well as continuous education throughout college because I know from the populations that I have worked with the finances are just not discussed at home because you can barely make ends meet. So it has to start at the K through 12 level and it has to be a multiple prong approach. So, so, so I would agree, Hilda. And so it, I, I'll just go to the next step and uh, offer that it, to me, if we're gonna be successful, uh, as we achieve success, let's put it more positively, uh, in enhancing uh, the diversity of the veteran medical profession. Uh, we need to do that uh, eyes wide open. We need to be uh, proactive and aggressive, progressive in, in, in with our financial literacy, uh, but also to present uh, great uh, information on career options and the wide array of career opportunities in veterinary medicine. And as, as Tony is so well versed on the repayment options for the student debt, uh, I, I also uh, incurred a considerable amount of debt when I went to veterinary medical school. Uh, at the time, was at the leading edge of the of the uh, of the pack, I'd say, as far as the amount of debt that I incurred. 
Um, for me, it was a matter of I couldn't have gone to veterinary school without the access to those loans. And I wouldn't be a veterinarian today if it wasn't for that. So it is about access. How do we maintain access? And then how do we work together, as Tony says, uh, to, to, to build those repayment options and help uh, people consider those and know that, yes, it is, uh, it is feasible to go to veterinary school, even as at the price point where we are today, Lisa. Uh, but at the same time, we need to be mindful about that. We need to work together and really work uh, on those repayment options. And again, do it eyes wide open. Yes, sure. So Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, really generally top level about some of the repayment options that are available. We have a lot of pre-vet students that watch the show, and so I'm sure that they would be intrigued and yeah. <laughs> eager to learn a little bit about that. Absolutely. So I, predominantly, um, what we have is a suite of what are called income-driven repayment options available. And as the name implies, they're based on your income. So instead of having it uh, based like a traditional loan or a mortgage, based on the amount and the interest rate and the time that you repay it, it's based on how much income can you document. And there is a set amount of time that you can uh, repay those loans, depending on the plan that you qualify for or choose to use. And you know, that really opens up a lot of flexibility for folks because what happens is you know, we tend to take on the same amount of debt uh, generally as a physician, but our starting salaries are not nearly as high. So you know, it's difficult to make those ends meet, particularly as you're getting started. But if you can have your student loan payments based on your income, that really leaves you some flexibility to you know, not have to move back in with your parents, right? I mean, you can, you can still navigate these loans and payments, um, usually, the, at, at least at the newer iterations of them, they're generally 10% of your income, which is usually quite manageable no matter what you're doing, even if you're doing an internship or residency, uh, that can really be helpful. Uh, the consequences and you know, the side effects that we have to deal with is, is if we don't pay the loan to zero uh, by the end, right? And then we get to things that would like forgiveness, where they cancel the remainder of your student debt and then you have to, it's treated as taxable income. So those are a lot of unknowns that we have to deal with, but there are ways that you can plan for those as well. And in some cases, it can actually be a, uh, a less costly way of repaying your loans, depending on how your earnings goes over your career. Good, thank you. And so um, certainly we know that that then also offers um, a number of resources, a number of our organizations do. Certainly we have um, a tool on our website. Vin has a tool on theirs as well. We'll be putting those in the, the show notes um, for uh, as resources. So, um, you know, as we kind of talk to future applicants, um, I'd be kind of curious to know, uh, Dean, Dean Lloyd, what, what do you tell the first generation uh, 10th grader who comes to your open house um, and says, I want to be a veterinarian um, and whose parents are like, yeah, that's cool. Um, but have you looked at that data? <laughs> what do you think? Absolutely. I, you know, we, we, I, I can't discourage them from looking at it. Uh, I couldn't come to work if I didn't think it was a great uh, profession with a with a, just an exciting future. So I couldn't do what I do. So um, I, we, we have the conversation, first of all, about the wide away, uh, right, why, easy for me to say, 
wide array of career opportunities uh, that, that are available really to, to find something that in, within veterinary medicine, really to ident identify the areas that you're passionate about things you, because that makes it easier to come to work every day. That makes it easier for you to excel at your work. And then uh, to think about repayment options in that regard, uh, because there are repayment options, as Tony says, so we just need to think about them ahead of time. Uh, think about a mind, we plan ahead accordingly. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and in that way, it makes it successful to, to be, to have access not only to the profession on the front end, but to the career pathway of choice on, on, on graduation. So we talk about it. Uh, you can't make light of it. It is an important issue. We can't uh, look the other way and, and pretend it'll go away. Uh, but we have to look at it. Uh, and, and, and again, with a structured approach, with a mindful approach, uh, to, as Tony suggested, to, to make the plan and think about the options that, that are available. Sure. And um, Hilda, one of the things that we're seeing also in the applicant data is um, we're seeing an increased number of applicants who are taking community college courses. And, and certainly they're taking these courses for a lot of different reasons. Um, some of them are taking them while in high school, they have a dual enrollment, um, but some of them are really kind of looking um, to reduce costs um, of their undergraduate program wherever they can. And we actually saw an increase from um, last year's average was about 23 credits to this year's average was about 30 credits um, that they're coming um, on average to vet school with um, of, of um, community college coursework. And some applicants indicated that they were really kind of concerned. They said, this is the right thing financially to do, but they're a little concerned um, about um, how that looks for admissions committees. So could you kind of talk a little bit about um, what that might, you know, what that might look like at Michigan State and um, maybe kind of uh, give give our future applicants some some information on, you know, making good fiscal decisions can be a, still a good admissions <laughs> application decision as well. Absolutely. This is a, a great question, Lisa, and I am on a path to educate not only our Michigan applicants, but every applicant that comes in contact with myself or anyone on the team to say, first of all, you do not have to complete a baccalaureate degree to apply to Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine. You may apply with 55 credits, two years of college, and still be a competitive applicant. Of course, it's not for everyone, which I should say, but if you go to a community college, as long as that community college is accredited and you have uh, what my colleagues call, you are a good academic citizen and you're competitive, why not? You are saving quite a bit of money. Um, I, I am on this um, campaign with the team where we're bringing prospective applicants every month, 30 to 40 of them, to educate them about the advantages of maybe taking some of the courses at a community college where you might pay $150 per credit versus $444 per credit. So we're doing the math with them, and that is important. How does the admissions committee view that? They don't have to view that. I view that with the team in the admissions office because we have the Veterinary Medical College Application Service 
that number one looks whether the school is accredited. Number two, whether or not the grades are uh, the grades that they say they have based on the official transcript. So our admissions committee doesn't have to worry about the menial details. All they need to look at is that they attended an accredited school of higher education, whether a community college or a four-year institution. God, I am so happy that our students, some of them are being fiscally responsible by thinking about, okay, if I take 30 AP credits, that is wonderful. And if I do dual enrollment while in high school, and if I complete most of my prerequisites at a community college, and maybe only biochemistry at a four-year institution, I am gonna be saving at least $25,000. I applaud that type of decision. I, our admissions committee doesn't look at whether you attended community college or four-year school because it's not part of the selection process. So students, if you are on the line listening to this, go to the website at every one of those colleges that you're thinking of applying and study their admission selection process. And if it says that in order for you to be a viable applicant, you have to go to a four-year institution or an Ivy League, perhaps that might not be a school for you. So study what the requirements are and study what the selection process is. But I'd like to say something else, Lisa. When I meet with young people, you ask Dean Loy about what he says, what is the message to those prospective applicants? My message to prospective applicants, and the younger I meet them, the better the message, because if they come with their parents, I say, okay, you need to start doing your research about private sources of scholarship, about different venues where you can have your education financed, and you need to start early, ninth grade, eighth grade, seventh grade, because that will give them the 10 to 12 years that they need to plan, number one, whether it's savings, whether it's researching, possible private sources of scholarship. And I further tell them, if you are an out-of-state student and you're planning to come to Michigan State, you need to think about planning because it's very expensive. And it's no surprise to anyone that we are one of the highest tuition in the United States for out-of-state applicants. So I am transparent. So they hopefully between parent and prospective applicant, they can do appropriate planning because if there is no goodness of fit in the admissions selection process and you come to this program, is a recipe for losing an applicant, a candidate, and admitted student. So I want to make sure that our prospective applicants do their homework. Can I get to everyone? Probably not, but I know that my colleagues at the other 29 colleges are trying to do the same thing so that we have productive graduates of the profession. So that's my message to young people and to prospective applicants. Uh, and that's, for, for me, a community college is just another accredited institution. As long as they're accredited, go and take micro there. That would be fine. Great, great. Can, can I add? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to add some, something to that, because we get this question a lot from uh, the BIN community. And, and when we talk to uh, pre-vet students, you know, it's always, they always ask, you know, what's, what's the best way for me to do this? And that, while the income-driven repayment plans can help, 
to almost be a band-aid or a bridge to to help those challenging situations when you're just getting started it's still better to have the least amount of debt possible right and there are ways to do that that are better than others when you're talking about applying and attending veterinary school so i you know one of the things that concerns me is that you know we, we do talk a lot about the median debt and i think the latest numbers that came out put it around 150 or so but that isn't attainable for everybody, right? That really depends on what your tuition classification is or what type of university you attend. So when you're researching veterinary schools, if you're not able to attend or as an in-state resident, then you really should be looking at schools that allow you to switch your residency status from out-of-state to in-state after the first year, because that makes a huge difference. When I look at people's loan statements and I look at the what their starting repayment balances are going to be, I just came back from UC Davis and University of Missouri and uh, Washington State. Those people start with significantly less debt than folks who attend an institution at four years at a non-resident or private rate. So there are better ways to do this than others. And we right now, we also know that uh, you're not going to get paid a premium based on the veterinary school that you attend. So better to pay the least amount possible than, you know, just the one that's going to let you in um, because your future self will thank you. Lisa, if I may, Tony, you made an excellent point about residency status and being able to change or not change. Also, if you're a member of the um, military, there are certain criteria that fit under let's change the residency status, which at Michigan State is very difficult to do. But if you're a member of the military, it's very easy to do. Additionally, there are states like Texas that if you are an orphan, immediately you qualify for in-state residency. So that homework is so important, depending where you fit in the category, whether military, orphan, of foster child. So those are things that I encourage our applicants to look into because there might be provisions for them. Certainly. To add a couple things, if I could, Lisa. Absolutely. Uh, so, so first of all, uh, price is important. There's no question about that. And in-state, out-of-state tuition, I mean, it's all important factors. Uh, but as with shopping for anything, price is only one dimension and only one choice factor. So really, it, it is one that you weigh against all the other dimensions of the education. Uh, the, the second thing is that we, you asked about what conversations I have with prospective veterinary medical students. The other thing that we need to be aware of is that, yeah, as, as Tony's rightly uh, indicated, we don't at graduation, our students don't make as much money as some other professions. but being a veterinarian isn't a, isn't a necessary to take an oath of poverty either. There are some very lucrative uh, career pathways in veterinary medicine. And so it is possible to be very successful financially in this profession as well. So again, it's, it's about all the career opportunities, all the options that are available, find the ones that really make most sense for you uh, and, and, then, and then get after it because it, it is, it's a great time to be a veterinarian. Lisa, if, if I may add to what Dr. Lloyd said, Dr. Lloyd, you are so right that it's about the, the type of institution that you want to attend. I often ask our out-of-state applicant, why Michigan State when you could have attended this other school? And they look at, of course, whether they want to 
pursue a DVM PhD, which they have those opportunities here. And there is assistance for that. So it's looking at best fit so that that candidate can be successful in your program. So you're absolutely correct, Dr. Lloyd, that it's not just about the debt, but also where do I fit best and where I can be most successful. Yes, fit is, I mean, fit is really important. Um, you want um, you know, on the one hand, we tell, sometimes we tell students, you can go and stay anywhere for four years. On the other hand, we really want you to be able to thrive in an environment. Um, and so, um, you know, we want students to make good fiscal decisions, but we really want them to make good in academic and environmental decisions for them as well so that they can really be successful. Right. So, um, so this is a, a general question. I'm kind of curious to who might jump in first, but there's certainly been a lot of discussion about adding more um, defined um, content around financial literacy in the DVM curriculum. And um, there's been certainly, I know that most schools probably have some amount of content on it, um, on this topic, but um, I'd be kind of curious about what your thoughts are um, collectively and individually on that, as well as where do you think that conversation is going to go? Um, there's Certainly a lot of efforts. We have um, our Fix the Debt um, stuff. There's the Economic Summit that AVMA has, where we certainly talk a lot about these kinds of things. There's um, programming at Venn. There's things that individual colleges are doing in, in um, relation to specifically looking at issues around financial literacy. Um, but I'm kind of curious to, to see where you all think that conversation might go um, in a very concrete way at the, at the school level. I'm happy to jump in there, Lisa. Uh, <laughs> this is this is a pond I've been wading in for years, uh, as you know. Um, you know, I, I'll start out with uh, by saying that that there are a lot of opportunities for students to get education to to, to get educated in in finances and management at the veterinary schools uh, today. Uh, and more opportunities today than there were 10 years ago, and, and, and that was an increase over 10 years before that. And I know that because we've done the study, as you know, Lisa, and we've published that. So the schools have been on a trend since, uh, since 2000 to, to in, or before to increase the amount of not just, not just financial literacy and management, but the, the broad array of non-technical skill sets, the SKAs as we call them, the skills, right. knowledge, aptitudes, and attitudes necessary for success in veterinary medicine. And some of those are about finance, but some are communication skills, some of them are leadership skills, some of them are ability to work successfully in teams. And the schools have been on that and been working on that, uh, again, since uh, the late 90s or, or 2000 or so. The second point about this is, uh, you know, you think about veterinary medicine, think about what it takes to be a veterinarian today, but think about the scientific base that we need to be successful, the knowledge base that uh, our students need to be successful and hit the ground running, as they say, on day one. You know, the, the, it isn't getting any smaller. Uh, and as we talk to our faculties and think about what is it that we need to put in our curriculum at the University of Florida as a required experience, uh, you know, the, it starts to, to get to be an interesting conversation about where uh, and how much of the curriculum do we allocate in the required sense uh, to financial literacy 
as opposed to making it available as as uh, as a as an optional or, or as an elective. So we do have a core here, as do most schools, a core of of this uh, education and these materials that is required. Uh, but boy, it, it sure becomes a, a tough thing to justify that the latest in the science and the clinical skills and the diagnostics and the medicine and the surgery uh, shouldn't be included because we need one more lecture in, in uh, debt repayment or, or that sort of thing. So it, it's a balance. Uh, again, more available now than there ever has been in the past. Uh, a lot of it as core and required, but uh, even a lot more, not just as elective courses, but again, the, the other thing that uh, happens is, is we have co-curricular opportunities through experiences such as the VBMA, Veteran Business Management Association, student-led organizations that actually bring this material uh, to the students outside the classroom. So um, th there are a lot of things there, and, and I've packed a lot in, and I'll just I'll let somebody else take off from here. Well, let, let me jump in just to echo what Dr. Lois said that yes, since 2000 and, and before, um, most curriculums have covered uh, practice management courses. And, and, I, and I see the need for keeping those courses because they are really important. My, my only concern is, is that is appropriate time, but prior to enrolling in a DVM program, in the Doctor of Veterinary Medicine program is also an appropriate time. And we're seeing from the Department of Education where more and more is being required of comprehensive campuses and community colleges for financial literacy. How that is happening um, is, is, is a concern to me, but, but I see those requirements coming from our Department of Education but I don't know that there is a consistent way in which this literacy in terms of undergraduate curriculum is being delivered. So that is a concern of mine because Dr. Loy is correct. We have a business management class here at Michigan State, but also the student clubs address some of that. I think it needs to happen earlier at the undergraduate level so that they get it because we're competing with some of the uh, curriculum, uh, important curriculum pieces that the faculty deem so appropriate and do we want to add to the debt law because we are adding these courses. So that, that's a concern, but, but I think it, it needs to happen also prior to arriving to our colleges of veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a little um, I'm a little torn on this one. I, I feel and I can definitely understand what uh, both Hilda and Jim said. They, it it is, and I, I I'm kind of taken back to the uh, the fix the debt summit, and I think it was Dr. Fung from Michigan State who said, "Don't make us charge you for this." Mm -hmm. And I, I I think there's some truth in that, right? I mean, if we put it in the curriculum now, you have to have staff to support it, and you have to charge, and it also takes away from the other material that's already. You know, there's there's not any more room to to um, to take things out, and we've also talked about somehow shortening the curriculum. So now we're really running up against competing ideas for adding more and taking stuff out and shortening the curriculum, and and ultimately trying to decrease the cost, not increase the cost. That being said, I think what Jim uh, said about the VBMA is great. I mean, they, they have really picked this up and run with it. So the Veterinary Business Management Association and all the schools have have really picked up the slack here. The one part that concerns me is that's kind of a self-selective group, right? So those are the, the folks who are really 
numbers oriented or, or business minded in the first place. So what about those folks kind of like we identified in the beginning of the podcast who are afraid to talk to their financial advisor at the school about how to fund their education? You know, the, the folks who uh, find it or, or find it easier to put their head in the sand that can continue to do so if it's not somehow required. Right. So that's where I say when I'm sitting on the fence and I'm torn in both directions, I feel like there has to be some way to provide it, but again, I don't have the magical answer on how to how to do that. But um, right now, BBMA is a great tool for getting that information, but you're going to have to seek it out. Again, uh, Tony, I, I would say the repeat that the, the data indicate that uh, every veterinary medical school, at least in in the United States and Canada, the North American uh, schools, uh, has a core. Every school has a core course that's re, that required that's required uh, that contains. Uh, some, some financial literacy and some management. Now, it's not scripted out. It's not the same in every curriculum, not the same number of hours or the same place in the curriculum. And I'll agree with Hilda, the earlier we can do this, the better. But but every school has something available. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, so I'm going to make a comment here because I, I am... Um, I am able to look at some data when incoming applicants come in for orientation. Everybody's really excited. Uh, about beginning the curriculum. And when I looked at the survey data after orientation, the, the, the one information session, seminar, that is not popular at all is financial aid. <laughs> and to me, is it that we are not ready to hear this? You know, I, I have read studies where when you don't have a lot of money, you don't want to balance your checkbook because it's painful. You don't have money, right? So to me, are, are students ready to, to learn the way we're teaching it? And I think maybe it could be our teaching methods or the delivery of the, this important information. And how do we change it? I don't know. But I do know that that is one of the least favorite topics and that is not just in veterinary medicine, in medicine, in nursing, sure. I was. So, so I think we need to really be creative and, and rethink how we are teaching. Sure. It, well, you know, it doesn't surprise me to kind of hear, I've heard um, that type of data, particularly around orientation before. And I always imagine kind of students sitting there going, ah, I finally achieved, achieved this step in my dream. Don't kill my high. Don't, get yes. <laughs> Don't bring me down by talking about money. <laughs> so I think that there's a really emotional, um, you know, reaction to it too. Like, can I just have this moment um, mm -hmm. of, of, of joy, right? So, um, so I, I want to talk a bit, um, we've got just a few minutes left in the, in the, to, in the show, um, what role can and should scholarships play in, in um, creating and maintaining access um, to veterinary school, certainly for all students, um, but for, you know, these students that are coming from economically marginalized backgrounds, um, you know, typically there's not, um, there, there's a lot of money out there in general, but it tends to be, um, you know, once it kind of gets spread around, we're looking at, you know, three to $4,000 kind of about that per student um, um, on institutional aid. Certainly they're private scholarships, but institutional aid, we're looking at probably about three or $4,000 per student. So, um, and that's not for every student as well. So, you know, 
what about scholarships? Um, you know, what what are we doing? And I know that that um, Florida has um, an initiative around this. Sure. E- easy enough softball. Right? <laughs> right. Well, well, we do, Lisa. We're a little behind the curve. I'll admit that uh, be- because we're a relatively young school, relatively small school. Our alumni data, our alumni base is not as large or as mature uh, professionally or financially as many of the schools. So, so we've got some catch-up ball to play, but we're we're on it. We're we're, we're we you know we we place this as the top priority in our fundraising. And so it isn't at the exclusion of everything else uh, because we've uh, increased our development staff, our fundraisers. Uh, we've I've increased our, with my discretionary funds as the dean, money that I could spend on the other things related to education. But to me, it's most important uh, to, to be investing in fundraising for scholarship, not as an either or, so that our, our, our fundraisers don't have to make a choice. Uh, so that we we have more boots on the ground, if you will, out there raising money. This is is really seems like a big deal. It seems like a big number, seems like a big lift, but it really isn't if we sit down and do the math. There are enough of us in this profession. Uh, there's enough goodwill out there for veterinary medicine and the good work that we do, uh, created by all of the great professionals that are there. Uh, and and so we just need to kind of kind of leverage that, think about it, and, and, and help uh, help people help us to pay it forward. Uh, and I think as we get that message, as we get behind it, uh, it really isn't going to be that tough to do. We just need to, and we're gaining some momentum here. We call, I, I mentioned this to you earlier, Lisa, before we went on there, we call our program the Veterinary Access Scholarship Program. We want to maintain access to veterinary medicine to the front end, uh, to that broad array of students that we want to recruit from, the multidisciplinary, the, the, the diversity of uh, multidimensional uh, class, and the wide diversity of students, um, but we also want to maintain access uh, to the career pathways at, at, the, at graduation so that people can pursue the career pathway they're most passionate about. That's where they're gonna make the biggest difference in the world, if you will. That sounds a little like Dean speak, but really that's what it's about. What is it that we're passionate about? If we align the, our passions with the, the things that we do every day, that's where we're going to be most successful and make the biggest difference. So, yeah, we again, we have a ways to go here. Florida, we've got a ways to go as a profession, but I think if we kind of all get behind this, we can make a huge difference. All right. So everybody get out there and raise some money. <laughs> yeah, and scholarships are great because you don't have to pay those back from a debt perspective. I mean, that directly reduce your, your cost. But like you said, um, not everybody gets them. So if you are yeah. one of those people that have to borrow to fund your veterinary education, then you have to put some extra time in making sure that the places that you are going to attend offer lots of scholarships and you see a pathway to um, to obtain those scholarships. So uh, anything you can do, any time you can put towards that is going to be time um, well spent. If, if I may add, with my scholarship hat out here, I think scholarship play a really important role in um, providing access to the profession. Dr. Loy, when I think about higher education, what you said about access is about access and affordability, those two combined. And um, I, I want our development team at every school that when they meet with someone, that instead of putting major criteria, they need to have a green eye and a red eye and purple hair and you know these things to make it so general 
that then the institution can really distribute this money and try to place more weight on disadvantaged background in terms of finances rather than the four-point GPA. I think that if you look at the correlation that you have between Pell Grant and debt of undergraduate students, that actually makes the point and the importance for really speaking with our potential donors about a population of disadvantaged students that really need the help coming from poor background. As we look at the population, there is a group that is, and I call them our, um, our emerging majority, which is growing versus our minority, which have been the majority, which is shrinking. So as we look at those population, development officers do do the talk that disadvantage is a priority rather than a four-point GPA or having some weird criteria that is really difficult to find. Therefore, we won't be able to spend the money. So, so that's number one. Number two, at Michigan State, we are. Um, there are two things that uh, our dean has really uh, told us that is one of his. These are the priorities: reinventing the curriculum, more scholarship, as well as changing diversity and spreading diversity in every corner of this college. So that's a priority. And our development team, every time I see them, I say, it's only $10 million. That's all I need. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and they're right down the, the door for me. So they sometimes hide. But I think uh, development, fundraising, is everyone's business at the, at the colleges. Everyone. So everyone should be able to uh, state the case and why it is important. All right. Lisa, this isn't, as, and, and to, to recap, I guess I, I, I want to emphasize, this isn't, a, as we all know, uh, and I think as, as we're getting around here, this isn't a, a single dimensional issue, right? There are a lot of ways to, to tackle this, and, and scholarships are, are one way to help. Uh, financial literacy is another vital, uh, vital piece of the puzzle. Uh, the ability to earn a, a strong income the day that you graduate is, a, is so to be well trained in the skills you need to be successful on day one is another piece. Uh, the the wise spending and uh, management while you're in veterinary medical school so that you don't borrow any more than you need so you save as much as you can while you're going through. I think all those are important pieces. So it, and and for for some students, uh, some are better than more important than others, but it's one that we. As leaders in the profession, I think we all need to keep it, keep the, the entire array in front of us. And not to mention minimizing the cost of what we do. We need to think about uh, prudence in, in how we run these veterinary schools and, and, the, and the things that we do and how we spend the students' money as well, the quality, the quality of education we deliver. So um, I've got time for one more um, kind of parting question. And, and um, Tony, you kind of leaned into this just a little bit when we were talking about different kinds of income-based um, re repayment. But I'm going to um, um, ask uh, Dr. Lloyd, Jim Lloyd, to, to talk a little bit um, briefly about the fact that we talk a lot about starting salaries, which scares the heck out of a lot of people. <laughs> 
what does the what does the income arc kind of really look like so that people have a at least a, an idea of what that first 10 to 15 years might look like um in terms of salary we we talk so much about the first year debt to income ratio which makes people's hair stand on end but um you know yeah. it changes yes but yeah, it certainly does. And and so we look mostly at starting salaries and that's how we calculate this. Uh, and and starting salaries uh, vary as, as you've indicated, whether you're as we as we've talked about whether you're gonna do an internship or residency or whether you go into a private practice or or, or into an industry position. Uh, I, I think it, it so so the the increase is important to, to remember but it's and to think about and to know that incomes do go up. But it's important to think about the difference in increase and difference in income earning ability uh, and, and the, the upper end of that income distribution uh, as it correlates to and is related to the career pathway you choose. So if you choose to be a practice owner, for instance, the upper end of that income distribution is much higher than if you choose to stay as an associate uh, your entire life. Okay. Uh, associates may, may uh, be an associate might fit particular uh, graduates and that might be what I want to do and that's where I'm going to be, be happiest. At the same time, uh, I want to emphasize heavily that practice ownership is not excluded because you've got student debt. In fact, that's one of the best ways to repay your student debt if done right. And so uh, the, the rate at which the income curve goes up, Lisa, and the height to which it achieves, uh, that you can achieve, really depends on the career pathway that you choose. All right. Thank you. So um, you heard it here. Incomes do go up. <laughs> they do go up. So you don't have to be terrified of just that first year starting salary that we spend a lot of time talking about. Um, well, thank you all. Um, this has been fun. Um, certainly, I'm sure we could go on and on um, for another hour or so. And maybe we will um, all get together at the uh, sometime this fall to talk a little bit more about some of these issues after um, the, the next class gets seated. Um, but for today, I'm really grateful and thankful that each of you have taken an hour out of your time um, to, to be on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. And thanks for leading the discussion for us nationally. We really appreciate your leadership. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So that is all for tonight. Um, uh, viewers, we are grateful to have you as well. Um, be sure to check out the next episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. We will be talking about diversity and research on May 5th at 5 p.m. Eastern uh, Daylight Time. So that information will be going out soon. And you'll be able to catch this episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air um, in your podcast app um, uh, pretty soon. So thank you so much and have a great evening. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.